Hello and welcome to another episode of the Weird, Wacky and Wonderful Stories podcast with your hosts, Shelley and Bella. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 107 of the Weird, Wacky, and Wonderful Stories podcast. What's the matter with you? You stole my line. Well, you know, I can do this. You don't have to be here all the time. I'm hurt. Oh, you're right, sure you are. I'm saddened. Mm-hmm. Um, you look it. I've, I don't know. I don't even know where to come in now. What do I say now? Tell us, tell us all about who we're going to be talking with today. Okay, well, before I do that, just to let you know that the subject matter that we're covering today um, is about uh, medical endeavour, medical experiments, and that type of stuff. So if you're maybe a little bit of a sensitive disposition and may struggle with that, then obviously don't listen any further. Um, but I have to say that uh, the... The subject matter is absolutely fascinating, isn't it? You will think that it is fiction, but it is not. Yes, it definitely fits into the weird, wacky, and wonderful as well. Um, like I said, there are some bits in there that some people may find a little bit hard to deal with, especially when we start talking about the experimentation on animals. So if you are a little bit, um, you know, uh, going to be upset by that, then obviously maybe this isn't the episode for you. But uh, I have to say, it is fascinating. Um, anyway, let's get on to the show. We spoke to our guest this time last week. Unfortunately, we did have a little bit of a problem with the video. Uh, it wasn't her fault. It's nothing that she did. Uh, it's just gremlins in the system. Okay, so um, we have removed her uh, video from the centre of, of the recording um, and put a picture of her in there instead because we didn't want the problems with the video to detract from what she was telling us which is obviously the most important part so um dr brandy scalache is who we're speaking to she's a historian of medicine and the critically acclaimed author of death summer coat clockwork futures and most recently mr humble and dr butcher which was described by the new york times as a macabre delight her books have been reviewed in Science Magazine, The New York Times, The Boston Globe, New Yorker, Washington Post, The Wall Street Journal and more. Dr. Scalache is host of Peculiar Book Club, a live stream community of authors and readers. And she's appeared on Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum, NPR's Here and Now and Fox's American Built. She has bylines at Scientific American, Globe and Mail, Huffington Post, Wall Street Journal, Medium and Crime Reads. Please welcome to the show, Dr. Brandy Scalache. Hi, Brandy. Welcome to the show. Hello. Nice to be here. Thank you very much for coming along. Well, obviously, we are the Weird Wacky Wonderful Stories podcast, and the book that you've written is definitely about a subject that I would say falls into the weird and wacky, <laughs> and rather weirdly, into the wonderful too. Mm -hmm. um, 
depending on how you look at it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, it's going to depend on whether or not you're a monkey, I think. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we're going to get on the monkeys later on. Um, so Bella's going to take the lead on this because she's got more of a medical understanding than I do. But to kick things off, we're talking about your most recent book, uh, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, A Monkey's Head, The Pope's Neuroscientist and The Quest to Transplant the Soul. As amazing as this sounds, this is not a work of fiction, is it? It is not. Um, though, when my uh, when I first pitched it, my editor took it before her board at the publishing house, and they said, "Well, we don't we don't do fiction." <laughs> she was like, "Well, I know." <laughs> so, yeah, it, it does strike a person as though it might be science fiction, and it inspired science fiction. It actually inspired the second X Files movie. Oh, you've ruined my question. <laughs> oh no! Sorry. <laughs> so, who was Michael DeGiorgia? And how, how does he figure into all of this? Oh, so Michael is a friend of mine. So the, I, this is my third book, uh, the second of my books to be published in the UK. And uh, my very first one was called Death's Summer Coat, which is a somewhat metaphoric title, but it's about uh, grief and grief practices cross-culturally and historically. And it looks a lot at how did we arrive at the way we grieve or how we deal with death today. And I ended up interviewing a trauma, um, a, a neurosurgeon, a neuroscientist, and he was basically, um, a tra- he was on the trauma unit a lot. And so I talked to him at length about brain death. And shortly, I would say two years, three years after I worked on that book, he called me back to his office and said, now I've, I've encountered something I really think you should take a look. And so that was, that's kind of how he entered the story. Um, he he sort of dumped this in my lap, <laughs> somewhat literally. <laughs> and that's the um, how the book found you sort of thing that yes, you were talking it, about. It, that. Yes. Um, it all started with a notebook that had been given. Uh, Michael DeGiorgia was in a position very similar to the one Dr. White himself would have occupied at one point um, at university, or I'm sorry, at Case Western Reserve University Medical School. And so he had come into contact with some of the family members and they had bequeathed to him a notebook and this notebook was sort of the dawn of the story for me Who, whose uh, notebook was it? it it belonged to a man named robert white and i think actually i'll give you my introduction to robert white because i think i think it just it just helps you understand what a strange story this was when I go to Michael's office, he hands me a shoebox, which I wasn't expecting because neurologists are not in the habit of handing you old shoeboxes. <laughs> and when I opened it up, it had this notebook inside. And it was very old. It was clearly, um, it was very well used, battered, old sort of lab notebook. And as I began flipping through it, I noticed, well, let me just say a few things stood out to me. Um, brains, mice, taking brains out of mice. And there were little rusty red flecks on the pages. And when I asked Michael what those were, he informed me it was probably blood, uh, mouse blood, I suppose, from the experiments. And so I was literally handed a bloody laboratory (laughs) book. And I said, "What, what, what is this, Michael? And it was the following sentence that sort of launched this. He said, that's the lab notebook that belonged to Dr. Robert White, the first person to successfully transplant a primate's head in 1970, 1971. And all of those words together, just it took a while for me to really kind of process them all because I'm thinking, 
head transplant successful, 1970s, <laughs> how come I've never heard of this before? And so that's really the the dawn of this project, because at that point, you know, he knew, he knew he was going to hook me. There was no way I was going to set this <laughs> down after that kind of introduction. Um, and, and from that, I ended up meeting the family and getting a chance to see the archive. And it's an untold story. It's a story that has been largely lost to medicine, which is surprising because Dr. Robert White was prolific and very public in at the time. And so it's really almost, um, the mystery here isn't uh, that he was remembered, it's it's that he was ever forgotten at all. Do you think maybe the reason that was was because maybe um, colleagues and associates didn't really want to be associated with him because it, he really did kind of get the bad end of a stick in a lot of ways, didn't he? He did. I, the way I look at it is this way. Um, so I spend a lot of my time, I'm a historian of science and medicine, and I have noticed something in my career, and that's science and medicine don't always like to remember bits of the past that might not put them in a very good light. And you can kind of understand why. Uh, with the current COVID crisis, you know, as scientists have begun trying to figure out what's going on, they've gotten a lot of flack from people who don't understand that the scientific process, it, science isn't truth. It's the search for truth. So you have to constantly change your hypothesis as you go. And that means, you know, there's times in our history where the social mores were different and things were allowed then that wouldn't be allowed now. And sometimes science gets to the can uh, well ahead of the should. (laughs) So sometimes things happen that probably wouldn't happen if you had the proper ethics in place. So, um, so I think that's partly why I do think that there's times when we, we don't really like to look back at lobotomy either. And, uh, Mm. um, Sam Keen's book just came out. I just reviewed it for the wall street journal, but lobotomy was considered a great success at the time because there was no other way to calm patients. There wasn't, um, pharmaceutical means of calming, you know, uh, violent patients. So, but we still don't, we don't want to look back at that. Yeah. (laughs) We don't want to look at that. (laughs) I, I mean, I never heard about this story. Right. Not uh, like you said, it's like, how can people not know about it? Right. And so I went about it thinking, okay, well, there really wasn't, it was necessary to do the experiments because it has changed a lot and introduced a whole bunch of other things that are used in, in the medical profession that people just don't even realize it kind of goes back to that. Um, it, it does. Yes. But, but I, clear, I, but it does. I did feel when I was reading it, I'm going, oh, my God. I mean, who could do that? Who would want to do that? Mm-hmm. And I get it, right? I mean, I understand it's, mm-hmm. it is something that was necessary. And I kind of started thinking, like, it's almost like people like to eat meat, but they don't want to think about where that meat comes from and how yeah. it actually gets there. So it's easy because you just go to the store and you grab it. But if I ever did have a brain injury or, you know, something neurological that was happening, I mean, this is this is what that is sort of learning about and trying to get to the bottom of for people. So that's how I went. Okay, I get it. I can I can read it now because I could reframe it a bit. But it's still difficult. I mean, I ended up interviewing the Ingrid Newkirk, who was the founder of PETA for the book, and I had extensive conversations with her about Uh, about their view of how these things transpired. And, you know, she asked some really good questions. One is, you know, exactly what was necessary, you know, and where are the lines and limits and who makes those decisions? And so a good example of this is what White manages to do is he invents and perfects 
uh, perfusion techniques, which is a therapeutic hypothermia, which we use all the time now. What that means is the, the brain is very greedy. It's a really greedy organ. It needs lots of oxygen. And if it doesn't get it, it starts to die. And it's fast. We can't go without oxygen for very long at all. And our brain cells just end. So he found out that if you cooled down the brain, it was much less needy. And as a result, you could do operations more slowly, you could take more time, you could perform stop heart surgeries more easily, there were all kinds of things. And now, we even use therapeutic hypothermia for things like uh, protecting heart attack victims from brain damage. Because of course, if your heart yeah. is suddenly having an attack, you're also not getting proper oxygenated blood. So it is very important. On the other hand, he developed it so he could perform a head transplant. So you have these two sides. On one hand, very important medicine that's being done. On the other hand, he had freezers of over 300 monkey heads because he was trying to perform a head transplant. And I understood what, what uh, the founder, Peter, was sort of saying. Like, okay, you know, you say you, you want to help human beings, but if you develop the helpful techniques because you're trying to do something on the sort of sketchy edge of ethics where do we where how do we feel about that you know it, does it matter how we get knowledge if 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 we get knowledge in an unethical fashion do we still use it i mean she she made very good points so i i try to um i also am kind of on the side of science i i'm a science historian i i you know i've worked in medical schools at different times and i i get the point of experimentation but i did try to present both sides in the book because it these are important ethical questions to ask. And in fact, um, the result of PETA fighting people like Dr. White, quite literally fighting with him, um, is why we have better treatment of animals in experiments today. And an animal that's better treated also gives you better experimental results. So in a strange way, PETA really, they're the, the, them agitating for better treatment of animals also helps science. So yeah. it's an interesting relationship. And, and Dr. White was actually quite religious and, and stuff, wasn't he? And pretty ethical. I mean, I know he did, um, you mentioned that he actually spoke with a Pope and, you know, so. Two Popes. I, yeah. I wonder how he kind of, in his own mind, dealt with that. You yeah. Know? How'd, you, how'd you reconcile kind of what you're doing in the lab with the Catholic religion? How does that, how does and that And should sort of he work? be doing it? You know, yeah. I mean. So this is where um, I should probably talk a little bit about the title, because <laughs> I think this gets to these issues. I called it Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher because those were his two nicknames. And Dr. Butcher was what he was called by animal rights activists. And some of his colleagues were not super keen on what he was doing either. And Mr. Humble is the nickname he gave himself. Um, which is a bit tongue-in-cheek if you give it to yourself, I think. But the, the point is, he really did think of himself as a surgeon who saved countless lives, performed thousands of surgeries, had 10 children, I and mean, he was he was all Catholic, right? <laughs> had 10 children, you know, went to Mass almost every single day, was friends with two different popes, actually friends with them, like hung out with Pope John Paul II, um, started, uh, he helped to found the Vatican Council for Bioethics. He was clearly someone, he had developed a surgery for a little girl that I talk about at length in my book, which, who I've, I've changed the name to Caroline, but 
he perfected this surgery to save her life. Hours spent, you know, really working so hard to figure out how to do something everyone told him was impossible. And there's all of these ways that you look at him and think, ah, oh, Mr. Humble, what a, what a kindly, moral, upstanding, ethical, religious-minded man. And then you look at the other side of the things that he yeah. did, which seem completely, I mean, really somewhat awful experiments on... Uh, I understand the monkey primate experiments, but he did some experiments merely to prove a point. There's a really kind of awful anecdote about a dog. Um, and, you know, that was, I, you know, I had to put that in there. That's true, too. This is also true of this guy, that he had such an ego that he was willing to do things sometimes that seemed to flout the very ethics he seemed to stand for in order to get things accomplished. And I asked the very same question, how is this one guy how he almost seems like, like a Jekyll and Hyde figure. How can this be one person? But then, isn't that true of all of us? Aren't we all composites of competing yeah. and conflicting ideologies? And so White did not think that his religion and his science were opposed at all. He felt that they were um, linked and that he did science for God. Um, he even at times claimed to be like God's hands in the operating room, which is, you know, that's not, not exactly the Not very thing. humble. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, so it, it is curious. That's partly what fascinated me. I think if he had been all one kind, you know, if he had been all Mr. Humble or all Dr. Butcher, the book would be less interesting. But what, what struck me is just this constant tension between competing impulses of um, a kind of obsession with science that led him to do things that maybe we shouldn't do um, because he was so focused on getting the answers. And at the same time, this real heart for people and this very morally upright view of medicine and what it should do and his work on, uh, on the brain death question and making sure that we weren't taking organs from people until they were really gone. I mean, all of this, this is one person in a 50 year period of time when all of society is changing. We go through the, the, you know, the the civil rights movement and the end of the Cold War and the civil or uh, the animal rights movement. All of these things kind of happening, and he's intersecting in every single story that uh, you know in this time. You you mentioned there um, about the uh, brain death argument, and I know there's a, there was a lot of controversy about that, and you talk about that in your book. Can you explain to people what you mean by that who may not have read the book yet? Because I think people need to read the book, but those that's that the haven't hard yet. part. That's the hard part. You yeah. dangle the carrot. Yeah, you, you don't want them to have exactly. a bite yet. You don't want to <laughs> yeah. give them everything. But um, but yeah, if, can you explain that that whole controversy about the whole brain death uh, situation? Yes, this is something I still write about um, in other venues as well, because so we we like to think um, the general public that the brain death question has been answered. Right. We, we assume that doctors know when you're dead and you'd be really surprised and maybe slightly horrified to know that that's it's not a clear cut answer. Um, the, the line between life and death is muddy. So we can look at something that is alive and know it's alive, and we can look at something that's dead and know it's dead. It's that little middle ground in between that is very hard to understand. So if you think about this, before there were um, ventilation machines to, you know, artificial respiration, your lungs are controlled 
by your brain and they will stop working if you don't have if you have an isoelectric or a flat line EEG signal your lungs will stop working if you're not breathing you can't get oxygen if you don't get oxygen you die but the heart it's part of the autonomic system and it can beat because that's you know sort of reptile brain back in your brainstem area uh, it can beat even if you don't have a brain signal and this becomes somewhat problematic um, because once we had artificial respiration, you could keep someone alive because you're providing the oxygen, the heart is beating, it's sending the oxygen to tissues. Is that person alive or dead? There's no brain signal. Are they with us or are they not with us? And this becomes a question in the 50s and then you have organ transplants starting to happen. And it's one thing to take out someone's kidney when they have another kidney to carry on. But if you're going to do a beating heart transplant where you're going to take someone's heart out and give it to someone else, which we do all the time now, that heart has to still be in a body that is living. But you don't want to take the heart from someone whose brain is still in there, right? So how do we know when you're dead enough to have your organs removed? And who decides? Who makes those decisions? And in particular, in what ways are race and class and lots of other things involved here? Because when the first, uh, when the second heart transplant was done by Christian Bannard in South Africa, it was during apartheid and it was a black man's heart going into a white person's body. And naturally, a lot of black people were immediately concerned that they were going to be harvested to protect white people, that they would go into the hospital and doctors would just be like, nah, we'll just take these organs, we're not going to investigate mm. whether or not they're brain dead. And there were court cases fought about this. So, you know, and we might think that's all behind us, but we still, um, the red market is what they call it. This is a trade in organs uh, that is a black market, but, but it's called the red market. We still aren't always sure. I mean, there were several uh, cases that hit, I think, in 2017, another one in 2018, where people got in trouble for selling organs in maybe not so terribly ethical ways. It's important for us to make sure that you're dead before we start taking pieces out of you that you need for, for life. And Dr. White's time period, they were wrestling with that. When is a brain dead? He just asked a question from the other direction. He wanted to know what is brain life? And he becomes so invested in this that he wants to find out if your brain can outlive your body. And the very first experiments he does are brain isolation experiments. And trust me, that's actually weirder than head transplant. Like, there's so much in this book that is very, very strange. Yeah, that that I thought was interesting because at, at one point in the book, you're talking about how if you if you use the brain, it the the host body uh, or the whatever, it doesn't reject the mm. brain like it does a lot of other organs mm. um but i also know like if he it's you know when he did that with the monkeys you take that brain out but the circulation was still well, happening. hang on let, let, let's let's get you tell us about oh, the monkeys you, okay. you tell us about so that so that the audience <laughs> have got an idea of of what you're talking about when you say the monkeys so describe to us what happened with the monkeys where what you the, said that there was 300 heads in a in a freezer yeah, I feel like probably we ought to um, just put a trigger warning out there right now. Uh, I'm going to keep this toned down, and I think for some listeners, it might just be easier if you think of cartoon monkeys right now. We're just going to 
we're going to think of cartoon monkeys for what I'm yeah. about to tell you. Um, it is hard. This is difficult information. Monkeys are our nearest, you know, well, apes, primates are our nearest evolutionary relative. They look and act a lot like people, like children, kind of. They have uh, an intelligence level that's quite high. And when you're going to be performing radical experiments on them, that is something that, it, that can be hard to, to know. And just so, so you know, I had to watch video footage of a lot of this stuff, and I did my best to tone it down. I did not, I did not want to bring out the spook factor in the book. I wanted to bring out the science. But, yeah. um, but some of it is really difficult, and I'm just preparing you. So the, the experiments were, um, we isolate organs sometimes to study them. Okay, so we've isolated the heart. And they did this way back in Moscow. And in fact, Moscow ends up being part of the story because there's some two-headed dogs. It's complicated. But they, they can <laughs> Just throw that heart. in there. There's some two-headed dogs. That in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> two-headed dogs. They named it Severus. There's a lot going on there. Um, but they, they learn how to isolate a heart. So it's a heart. There's no body around it, but they're keeping it electrically functioning so that they can study it. How does it beat? How does it pump blood? What is it doing? That makes sense to us, right? What are you doing, though, if you want to see the way a brain works? If you want to keep a brain alive outside of its body to take a look at how it works, that's slightly more problematic, isn't it? Because we consider that to be the seat of personality. This is where you are, basically. I mean, in general, we think of it that way. They didn't always in history, but we do now. So if you want to isolate that brain and take a look at it, you have to keep the brain alive. But if you keep the brain alive, remember what I just said about brain death, if you keep the brain alive, then technically, aren't you still in there? So keep that in mind. He took monkeys, and what he wanted to do was keep the monkey's brain flushed with oxygenated blood. Again, this is partly why the perfusion hypothermia was important, so that the tissues don't die. It's still getting nutrients. But he then wants to take the body away from it. So how he does this it, he, his original idea looked a little bit like a lemonade circulator, but ultimately he ends up using another monkey. So he basically is pumping blood from one monkey's veins into the, the, the arteries around the neck, into another monkey's head. And when he's sure that all of that is, uh, you know, tied down, he cuts away the rest of the head around the brain. So you have a brain and it's being fed, but just cartoon monkeys, uh, it's being fed by blood from this other monkey. Now, this brain is by itself now. It is on a little platform that he had specially designed. It's not exactly in a jar, but a bit like that. And he has it hooked up to EEG, and he checks to see if there's brain activity. And not only is there brain activity, it's not wildly different than the brain activity you would see from a monkey whose brain was still inside its body, which means this little disembodied brain is still thinking. And... That, to me, is quite horrifying. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what it's thinking. I, I don't know if it's in pain. I, I, you know, it, it's been, there's no sensory input into it at this point because it can't hear, it can't see. It's, it's an upsetting concept. Um, you, in the dark, but possibly still in there, outliving your body, is not something that I want to contemplate. That does not sound like a good, uh, a good existence. It may be but he, he demonstrates that this can be done and then he uses that isolated brain to study how the brain metabolizes. It made like me, you study. It made me think a lot of that, um, you know, that locked-in syndrome? Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how I was picturing it, you know, from, yeah. you know. And, and as you said, 
it, when you cartoon monkeys is a great analogy, by the way. I'm sorry for Curious George, but oh god, um, <laughs> but the the idea of 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 that I can I can sort of find more palatable. You you mentioned about the two headed dog earlier on, and we kind of mentioned it in jest, but that was something that Bella actually went and looked up, and it's available on YouTube. I mean, you can see yep. it there. I mean, you know how these things appear on YouTube. I'll never know, but but it's there. Um, and this happened in, in Cold War times, was it? This two-headed it, yeah. dog, wasn't it? It did. Um, it, it's followed the work of Sergei uh, Brynjenko, who... So before there was a two-headed dog, there was a film released called The Reanimation of... I'm going to get it wrong, sorry. It's translated from Russian, and I always get the translation wrong, but it's basically reanimation, re-ama- reanimating tissue. And this was released by the Soviets in part to antagonize the West to say, look, we're figuring out how to stop things mm. from dying, how to bring them back. Then in 1958, after that, uh, Vladimir Demikov produces this two-headed dog. He basically surgically adds the head of one dog onto the body of another dog. They're both awake. They can both drink milk. They pant. They they, they look at you. You know, um, it's it's distressing, and it was done partly as a ideological combat against the West. And so White was motivated. And remember, his funding came from the government to do these isolation and head transplant experiments. And today, I think we find that hard to believe. But we were in an ideological war. You know, there was an outer space race and there was an inner space race. We were fighting against, we thought if our ideology, if our science won, our ideology would win. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, that the the two-headed dog video that Bella she was able to watch it. I wasn't, and I think that because well she kept saying no, but just have a look, just have a quick look. It's fine, just have a quick look. And I I glanced at it and walked away. And I mean, it wasn't gruesome or anything. I mean, you're not seeing well, you know, it wasn't gruesome, but it was grotesque in its way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's but, hard to see. And there was quite a lot of of two-headed dogs created. That was the Cerberus was the one in the film, and there was also um, Shavka and uh, Bradyaga, which were two dogs also created into one dog by Vladimir Devikov for a journal article and. That would, had a lot of coverage. Um, there was no film, for which I am glad, because I again I have to watch these films for mm. the book. Um, and you know, Vladimir Demikov in Moscow, he he didn't think that he was hurting the dogs. I mean, he ended up taking many of them home um, and yeah. taking care of them in his house. But naturally, the the bodies rejected the heads. I mean, you're never you're not creating a long-standing, long-lived creature. And in fact. Um, this is also true of White's monkey head transplants. The longest lived monkey head transplant, this is a monkey's head on another monkey's body, um, was nine days. And in some ways, I'm, I'm glad they didn't live any longer. This is not a kind of existence that I think anyone would want. The, the monkey head transplants, especially, they were paralyzed afterwards. Um, the two-headed dogs, one of the dogs was still functional because it had all of its limbs, but the other dog is only the upper half of its uh, it's sort of torso, and it it can't move. You know, it's it's paralyzed from the neck down or whatever. And so th- these are not they're not easy um, surgeries to to even know that exist. Even though they they result in many um, powerful findings that we that we use every day. 
Demikhov surgeries, Dr. White was not a fan of those dog surgeries. He felt that there was no reason to do them. They, they inspired him. Uh, they galvanized him, but he didn't see the point. Many people said that about white surgery, too, because they said, well, why would you do something like this if you weren't trying to save humans? But they didn't know white very well. Um, white was thinking about whether or not you could perform a head transplant on a human being. Yeah, I mean, if you've got someone who's been in an accident who's paralyzed maybe from the neck down and, uh, you know, and everything above is, is fine, then theoretically, you know, transplanting the head onto another body where now they've, they, you know, they've got all of their, you know, abilities, you know, uh, you know, abilities to move all of their limbs and everything else would be amazing. Goodness me, that would, that would make such a big impact today. It's like you mentioned in the book about Stephen Hawking that, mm-hmm. you know his brain was but he said but he would he didn't think that there was a problem with him himself did he he because he no this is a really important point and I'll, I'll see if i can make the distinction really plain because i think on one hand um performing a head transplant on someone they're still going to be paralyzed on the other end of that because you're severing the spinal cord mm. now there are things happening today where they're trying to fix that in various ways bypassing the spinal cord electrically etc but in general, if you're severing the spinal cord, that's that's it. You're not going to move. And many people said, well, why would you want to perform a head transplant on a person if you're just going to create uh, a tetraplegic human being? But there is a tetraplegic human being in this story, and he looked at it very differently. For him, as for Stephen Hawking, he said, my life is good. I, there's nothing wrong with me as a tetraplegic person. My life is still worth living so isn't it also worth saving? If my body was shutting down, wouldn't I want to have an organ transplant? It'd just be all the organs at one time. So I found myself at, um, at a crossroads, really, as a researcher, because it, it makes you realize that some of our revulsion to that idea might be ableist. Um, at the same time, there's lots of other ethical conundrums to use an entire body to uh, to get, if you're going to give someone an entire body as a transplant, they get all the organs, but that body could have helped a heart transplant victim, a liver transplant victim, a lung transplant victim. So you went from saving potentially five people to saving potentially one person. So you can understand the ethics are naughty. There's just not good. There's not an easy answer. You you think about transplanting like you were talking about onto a human there and prolonging their life because their organs are shutting down and the whole macabre in my mind anyway the whole macabre aspect of this goes out the window because all of a sudden now you're helping someone and yet as we keep going back to it required these macabre terrible acts you know to be performed and someone had to do it yeah, or well, someone whether they had to or not, I suppose depends on what side of the fence you sit on. But someone did do it for essentially our benefit, and um, for all of the faults that, that people may say he had, and, and a lot of people, you know, can say nothing but good about about him as well. I think you need to have that confidence and that ego to a certain degree to be able to think I can do this. You know, I, I think I yeah. can make a difference. I had a friend who worked, who was a neurologist, not a neurosurgeon, but he said once that neurosurgeons have to have 
large egos and that we want them to because they're going to have their hands in your brain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and I thought, well, yeah, I want him to go in there thinking I'm the best at this yeah. um, and to bring his A game every time. So, yes, th- there's a lot going on. I mean, I hope you guys will get and read the book. We're barely scratching the surface of everything that's in the book. But it, it asks some really hard philosophical questions and it, it means we have to address those questions because... Yeah. It we does. don't want to abdicate the responsibility for ethics to, you know, science as some kind of amorphous thing. It, science is run by people, and we all have to make sure that the ethics are right. Yeah, I, I think the way that you wrote the book, it doesn't emphasize... Um, you're not trying to make it sensational and and, no. and and say, oh, gross, yuck, whatever. You're just saying, this is what happened. This is what yeah. this, this is what happened. Yeah, I this think is it's what this man tactfully. was like. You know, you don't, you don't shock to just get a reaction. You're telling right. well, the story. To be fair, um, when you're writing about head transplants, I feel like you probably don't need to amp that up um, <laughs> any more yeah. than it already is. <laughs> Uh, I'm I'm a historian first, you know, Um, I'm not, I'm a historian, I'm a PhD, I'm a researcher, and that means I'm not, uh, I I do some journalistic things, I also write for magazines and newspapers, but for me, this is a a deeply philosophical, ethical, this is a story about us, and how, it's almost an outgrowth of my first book, right, my first book was saying, how do we deal with death and dying, and this book is like, where is the line between life and death? And how do we know? And who gets to decide? And how do they get to decide? And who put them in charge? <laughs> you know, yeah. These are really important questions. It is yeah. really important. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've got to ask, by the way, head transplant or body transplant? Oh, so there's a rhetorical, this is a fascinating, um, there's a rhetorical shift that happens. So Dr. White's first paper about the monkey head transplant is called the monkey cephalic transplant, which means head transplant. But you see, he didn't believe monkeys had souls. He was Catholic, he believed they had an animating spirit. He believed human beings had souls. And therefore a head transplant was a soul transplant. And so when he started thinking about this in terms of how you would do it with human beings, he decided that the soul was the primary so therefore, the head was staying in one place, and the body was coming to it. Um, so he changed it and called it a body transplant later on. Was this ever attempted on a human? So White himself um, got very close. I don't want to give too much away. Uh, but um, right now, as far as I know, it has not been attempted on a living human being. That doesn't mean it hasn't been attempted on a dead one. Um, there's a whole lot that goes into that, but cadaver practice is a thing. So, uh, no, not on human beings as yet. There is someone who is angling to try and be first. Wow. Okay. That's a hell of a makeover, isn't it? (laughs) Yes. Well, it asks us a lot of hard questions, you know. White thought you were all inside your brain. You were just a brain on legs. Yeah. But is that true? I mean, I have neurons in my stomach. Uh, my, my gender, my identity, all of these things matter to me and who I am, my experiences, my history, my, my medical history. Uh, Stephen Hawking's point was much that way. He said, okay. I am myself because I have this condition. Um, so 
you know, the idea that you could just pop your head on somewhere else and be exactly the same person when you woke up might not be accurate. Mm. I was going to ask you about that because I know that there have been cases where people have had organs transplanted and then all of a sudden they take on certain maybe personality traits of the donor. Um, it's, have you heard of that type of thing? or? I have not. I do think that there's psychological possibilities for that, more so than, than biological ones. But one of the things to consider is if I, um, if I have a hand transplant, which we've, we've done these, um, and this is no longer my hand, I have to choose to see it as part of my body in order yeah. for me to accept it as part of my body. Yeah, yeah. And there's an interesting case of a gentleman who received a hand transplant but could never think of it as his own. And ultimately, the body rejects it because he just, he couldn't, his mind couldn't get there. Um, and he had it taken off again. So it's interesting. We have to understand it as part of us. But if you're getting an entire body transplant, you're getting all the hormones and the everything from that other person. So now I think you, you do have to investigate whether or not that person's body is going to have an influence on, on your brain. Um, let's uh, well for one thing you know the i feel like we've learned a lot from the trans community about this right that your your identity and your body it matters that they match up so uh if you were a person who got a body transplant that was a different gender than yours it's going to have different hormones it's going to have there's a whole lot that's going to change or if you got a younger body right if you're a menopausal woman and you get the body of a young woman now all of a sudden there's estrogen happening you're it's going to change the way you I'm certainly not the same person I was when I was 20. And some of that is experience, and some of that's more biological. You know, we, we have this symbiotic relationship. We, we, are, um, we are multitudes. I, I think Ed Young wrote a book about that, uh, isn't it? I am multitudes or something. It's about the fact that we, there's so much happening inside our bodies from the bacteria communities to gut cultures to, it, we can't just assume, I think it's, um, it, it's, it's not just naive, it might be a bit, um, which is wrong-headed. Oh, sorry, didn't mean to pun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to think of our of our brains as being the uh, the master of this domain of our body, when in fact the body is basically a giant social democracy proletariat, and um, it does influence and impact the way our brain works. It does make you think. That was the one thing. As I was reading the book, I'm going, "Oh, wow, wow!" I never looked at it that way. I never thought about that, or. You know, so it really is a good read, definitely. Yeah, we've had know. so many deep conversations <laughs> since, since starting that book. And, but even down to kind of, you know, like you said, um, you know, about where the soul lives. Okay, this, you know, people used to think a long time ago that it lived in the heart and it lived in the gut. And, you know, there's neurons in the gut, as you, as you mentioned, you know. And, and so is actually, are there parts of the body that all work together to make the soul or does it just live in the head and i think whoever the first person is who does do this who, who does agree to to be the first living um and it will know, happen for this so will, it, it, no doubt it will i mean white was absolutely convinced it was going to happen uh like in the next 50 years and he said that in 2010 so well, they're going to answer that is going to answer a lot of questions because providing that person comes out of it cognizant and able to communicate, you know, exactly what they're feeling and, and all the rest of it. Wow, what I can't imagine what science will learn from that point well, on. 
I can, I can only problematize that by saying that the very first organ transplant actually answered one question and introduced about 5,000 others. So I have a <laughs> feeling that that's probably more likely what will happen. Yeah. Um, is we'll, we'll get a few answers and a lot more questions. Yeah. But questions are good because they, they form the next experiments, don't they? So what mm-hmm. was the um, X-Files then connection? Oh. <laughs> so... I ended up talking to Frank Spotnitz, um, the producer of X-Files, and he's actually going to be, I have a a book club called the Peculiar Book Club, and Frank's going to join me in October. Um, I have Chuck Wendig on uh, next week. But um, he wanted to make the second X-Files movie, and he was sort of toying around with the storyline and thought maybe there should be a kind of head transplant story involved. And one of his researchers sort of knocked on his office door and said, who do you think we have a problem uh, it's been done. <laughs> so he flew to Cleveland and he met with Dr. White and got a lot of pointers for him and a lot of ideas. And so I ended up interviewing Frank about this. And uh, Frank ended up reading my book and he said, you know what? The real story is even weirder than the X-Files. It is <laughs> <laughs> um, and Frank's a really lovely guy, by the way. Uh, really, really nice guy. So um it did have an impact on how he put together the second X-Files movie based on what he heard from Dr. White right here in Cleveland. Wow. Wow. Interesting. When you start to unravel stories, like, you know, where they actually lead. People ask me why I write nonfiction and I do actually write fiction too, but um, why I tend to write more nonfiction than fiction. And I said, because it's weirder. It's much stranger than anything I could come up with. Um, at the Peculiar Book Club, we've interviewed Mary Roach, Lindsay Fitzharris, you know, all of these folks who write these nonfiction books that are definitely weirder than anything mm-hmm. I would come up with for a fictional story because no one would believe it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it, it kind of, I was thinking earlier about that, you know, that movie Death Becomes Her. Do you remember that? Yes. That I comedy do. Death Becomes Her. I can imagine Dr. White watching that going, I've done that. <laughs> you yeah, know? yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He, he was really something. Um, people ask me what, what side of Dr. White I come down on at the end, and I hate to do this to you, but I'm basically of two minds about it. Uh, he's, he really uh, he's a big personality, and there's times when, you, when in the research when I thought, what an amazing man. And then there were times where I thought, what a butthead. <laughs> so yeah. it really, you got to run the gamut. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's what we found, didn't we? What? Reading it, we were kind yeah. of like one minute we we were kind of like along along for the ride. The next minute, we were like, "I want to get off of you." Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but no, I, it's it's brilliant. It really is good. Sorry, Bella, I'm hijacking your no, questions. No, it's fine. You you it's crack fine. on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm good. All right. Um, so, what? Where do you where do you sit? I'm I'm not asking about the book now. I'm asking about you, Brandy. Okay. Where do you sit on? Um, where you think this is gonna this is gonna end up? I know you said that it'll probably happen one day, and there'll be loads more questions. But if you had to guess, in mm-hmm. terms of you know where you th- what you think will happen, a lot of our listeners, by the way, they're into the paranormal and the unexplained and anything weird and everything. So I know that people are going to be saying to me, "But what do you think happens with the soul?" But what do you think? And I know that that's a million dollar question that no one can expect you to say. Well, I guarantee you know. Um, but what's your opinions? Where do you where do you think you sit on that? Well, one of the things that strikes me, um, this is very strange because I'm partly influenced on my answer by mushrooms. I know 
I know that sounds strange. Um, not magic mushrooms. I mean, actual mushrooms. Right, okay. um, one of the things that I love about learning about mycelium is that there's this way in which in nature, you know, a mushroom is constantly growing and changing and taking nutrients from a tree here and putting it over there. And we've learned that plants communicate in a way that goes beyond the life of a single tree. So I don't think that it's unlikely for us to think of the human beings that way. I know, you know, we've moved pretty far away from the sort of um, early Christian medieval construction of like, this is a soul and this is where it goes and here's purgatory and here's the nine levels of whatever. We don't necessarily follow that so much anymore. But I don't think it's wrong to think that there's aspects of ourselves that go on because it's true in so many other parts of nature. It's true of so many other living things. Um, so it's it's hard for me to answer, but at the same time, I'm 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 not someone who's against that idea at all. And I really respected White's configurations. He comes up with all kinds of strange theories, including the fourth dimensional soul, which he felt intersected the three dimensional body somewhere in the middle of the midbrain. I mean, he had a very complex understanding of what he thought the brain biology soul connection was. I don't have anything like that well of a worked out theory but you know we are part of our environments we're we're part of each other we're part of our family groups we're part of our histories we're technically you know we're part of the future and i think that that concept of connectedness is really important and um that's really what the concept of the soul is all about so I suppose that's kind of where I am. And that means that I, I don't I don't really close the door on anything. I'm a very open-minded person. And so usually if someone comes to me and goes, well, maybe this, I'm like, hmm, maybe. <laughs> you know? um, but I but I, invent the, I, I kind of keep that separate from the, the science. But I got to tell you, science discovers really remarkable things all the time. Um, quantum physics in particular, this kind of idea of spooky action at a distance. I, I think if you can believe in electrons, um, you can probably believe that there's something beyond the the biological yeah einstein's uh, spooky action at distance that's um quantum entanglement isn't it that's uh, mm-hmm. that that is just a minefield we've got to get someone on to speak about that but that's uh, that's a <laughs> minefield as well but um the what's next for brandy what's next oh well brandy project? never stops working uh <laughs> <laughs> Um, someone asked me why I was so prolific and I explained that poverty is a great motivator. Um, <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I write for a living. So I, I run a book club, as I mentioned, I also write quite a lot. I just had a couple articles out with scientific American. I do uh, book reviews for wall street journal. I'm constantly thinking about, it. I have a column on medium where I talk quite a lot about death and dying. Um, post pandemic, I, I kind of revisited my first book through a series of articles on Medium where I said, okay, this is what I was thinking about death and dying in 2014. Um, things have really changed and shifted. What, what does that mean for us today, you know, in this, in this aftermath period um, where things are actually not even over, they're just still ongoing. And so I, I wrote about that. Um, I've talked a little bit in my writing about uh, histories that we, we might not, we might think we know but don't know so here's a for instance you've all seen pictures of the nazi book book burning Mm. you've seen the big pile of but you probably don't know that the books they were burning belong to the first trans clinic which was opened in 1919 to perform sexual reassignment surgery and counseling by a jewish homosexual 
doctor Why? in Germany, in Berlin. It was burned at, uh, they, they were, it was ransacked in 1933 by the Nazis. So you've seen the picture, but you don't actually know the story. Yeah. So th- those are things that I, I, that's what I love to, to do. And so that's a lot of what my research is, is on right now is in that direction. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I'm working on a book proposal right now, which I'm like maybe slightly overdue on. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, I, I know that you are busy and, and I really appreciate you taking time out on a Sunday to speak to us um, on here. We've only skipped the surface of, of the information that you've got within your book. Um, it has kept us riveted. Um, we've wanted to know what's happened next. Um, it's, it's really written well. Like we said, it's been written with tact and with respect. Um, yeah. You know, and, and I think that's that's really quite a, a class act really to be able to do that with the kind of subject matter that you were dealing with so um can you tell our listeners where they can get a copy of your book and where they can find out more information from about kind of what you're doing and what your current projects are at any given sure time? so i have the benefit of being the only person in the world named brandy skilache so if you google <laughs> me i'm the only one who comes up um, there, I, my website is brandyskilache.com. The only difficulty is in spelling my name. Uh, so it's S-C-H-I-L-L-A-C-E. And uh, they never forget it in Ireland because a Skilache kept them out of the World Cup finals quite a long time ago now. <laughs> they always remember it there. Uh, so, yes, you can, you can go to my website. The book is available from any bookseller, uh, so your local bookshop should have it. Um, you can get it from Amazon UK. You can pick it up from, uh, you can actually get it from Simon & Schuster directly if you like. Uh, I There's a um, also an audiobook, which is quite nice, and I actually know the person who did the reading, and she did a lovely job. There is also, if you're interested, uh, I write about it a lot in articles as well. So I have a couple of articles out there that take things I couldn't, fully addressed because there's so much in the book and I wrote about a piece for Undark I wrote about another piece uh, it's over on I think Wired or uh, I'd have to look at it but anyway you can, if you look on my webpage you'll find it I'm on uh, Twitter at Skilache, so you can find me there I almost live there and I'm very easy to get a hold of actually that way and Peculiar Book Club is my book club. The uh, website I sent you to, there's a, a tab called Peculiar. That'll get you there. We also have a Twitter feed, a Facebook page, uh, a YouTube channel where you can catch our old shows. And the difference in the Peculiar Book Club is that instead of me interviewing the authors, you do. So we literally run it as a book club where we discuss the books, but the audience gets to interview the authors about it. Uh, we had Carl Zimmer on last time and we're doing Wendy Moore and uh, also Chuck Wendig and later Sam Keen. We've had Lindsay Fitzharris. She'll be on again in the future. Um, so yeah, come check us out. I'm, I might be a little bit everywhere actually. So there's no excuse. I'm literally everywhere. I'm, you know, I will haunt your dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we really, really appreciate you coming on. It's been an absolute thrill to speak to you. And, and like I said, the, the book is amazing. And, uh, well, like you said earlier about, you know, if that, if that operation, if that surgery does happen, it will, it will uh, leave you with more questions. And I think this book has, has definitely done the same because, uh, yeah, if anything's haunting us at the moment, it's all of these questions that, that we've got that, we won't know the well, answer until... Well, it just makes until... you think. That's the thing. Yeah, yeah. About stuff maybe... I, I never really thought about yeah. a head transplant before. 
what I mean. Yeah, but even even like you said, into the Cold War and everything as well, because obviously I guess, you know, if the Russians could convince, you know, the Allied governments, let's say, that, um, you know, they could reanimate their soldiers, for instance, you know, then... You know what would we? You know what would we be thinking? You know that that we're never gonna. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, those kinds of things were coming into us, and our dog is now apparently started reading it because she's going nuts as well. <laughs> she doesn't want the second head. No, that's no. it. Yeah, she's she's got to this. I'm off. All right. <laughs> anyway, listen, Brandy, thank you very much indeed for joining us on the Way Back You Wonderful Stories. Thank podcast. you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye.